Welcome to The Gift of Addiction. My name is Bertie Fagan and my guest today is the delightful Heather Fagan. Heather is my cousin and while I invited Heather onto the show because while Heather has not suffered from a drug or alcohol addiction per se, she has had her troubles in the past with other addictions including work addiction, love addiction and anxiety and depression. Heather is an inspiring person she worked as a police officer in Western Sydney for seven years. She converted to Islam in 2008. She completed a master's in Islamic studies. She works and volunteers for an Islamic community organization and the Center for Islamic Studies and Civilization at Charles Sturt University. She teaches Islamic community courses, has tutored university subjects in Islamic studies, ran a program for new converts for over seven years. She is a mentor to many both in and out of the Islamic community. She also attended the same rehabilitation facility that I attended. And I'm just absolutely delighted to have you on the show today, Heather. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Bertie. I'm delighted to be here too. So where do we start? I would, I'd like to talk about uh, Islam and how faith has changed your life, but perhaps we could start from the time when you started working as a police officer and your journey to faith and then your your journey into recovery from from anxiety and depression and as well the love and work addiction yep so yeah i haven't suffered from depression but the other things are right um i guess yeah so it was about midway point through my time as a police officer i was there for six and a half years it was during that time that I converted to Islam. Um, and yeah, it's, it's changed my life a lot. But there were some things in my life that I, I thought were wrong with me. Um, so one was, for example, I used to never cry, except if I broke up with someone. So, you know, people used to say, oh, but everybody's different. But I still thought, oh, I think that's a problem. I also, faith gave me a lot of peace. So I found myself becoming much more calm. Um, I found that I had a purpose in life. So life was much better. I found this um, comfort in faith. But there was still a tightness in my chest. There was still, I felt there was a level that it was like there was a barrier and I couldn't quite break it to getting that true peace. I mean, Islam, the word Islam and the word Muslim, that means that you will find that true peace through through following what God um, asks us to do or, you know, through submitting to God. That's what that word means. So I knew, you know, it, I'm supposed to be more peaceful than that. And I also found that I was becoming much more humble, but I still, I felt like there was a little kind of resistance. It's hard to explain, but I felt that there was something that even though I wanted to be humble, I couldn't quite break some sort of barrier. But I guess um, the the trigger for me was that, I was scared to get into another relationship because I didn't like how I am in relationships. I give my whole self to the other person. Um, I, I lose myself and I found myself conflicted with um, not feeling productive enough because there were people that needed my help. So it was just an excruciating feeling. So I knew there was something wrong with me. And a lot of people told me, no, no, you're right. Girls just fall hard. This is what we're like. Um, but it was my good friend Dana who said to me, no, this is actually codependence. 
uh, and she gave me a book, Facing Codependence by Pia Melody. And when I read it, I said, oh my goodness, this is me. There were other things that I hadn't realised, such as Pia says, you know, some people can be human doings instead of human beings. And I felt like that's how I was. When I went into South Pacific Private, I, I remember saying, you know, I feel like a robot. I just do things mechanically, you know. I'll never miss a deadline. I'll never miss a promise that I've said that I'll do, which are great qualities, but... I would push myself too hard. So in the year before, in the year leading up to going to rehab, I had been sick, really sick twice and still trying to work, still, you know, not accepting that it's kind of okay to be sick, like still working myself into the ground. Um, so, yeah, there were all these things. And when I read this book by um, Pia Melody, Facing Codependence, I said, oh, my goodness, this is me. It was like finally somebody um, understands me. You know, I can be a bit black and white. That was another example. There, there's a few of them. But, yeah, she said, if you're not, if you don't cry, then you're not um, expressing your emotions. And, and I realised that's how I was living my life. I wasn't feeling my emotions properly. I had shut them down, I guess. I just want to ask you about codependency, Heather, because... A lot of people probably think that codependency just might exist inside the realm of romantic relationships, but codependency can exist in all sorts of relationships, can't it? Yeah, and it's going to affect all of your relationships and, and all your life, really. And Can you define, honest, sorry, can you just give us a definition of what, what you know as codependency? Because for people like myself, who are pretty thick, I don't really understand codependency, so I'd really like you to explain it to me. I think you do, Bertie, but um, it's basically developmental immaturity, which means that, you know, things happen to us in our life, to everybody. And as a young child, we can't make sense of them, uh, you know, in a healthy way. So then we might not develop healthily in certain areas, and she lists quite a few of them. One is, you know, self-esteem. Um, so if we don't have healthy self-esteem, then that's going to affect the way that we um, live our lives. If we don't know how to implement boundaries properly, the same thing. We we need to know how to be vulnerable with people, with some people, but not over vulnerable, like where we you know overshare with people we first met. So it manifests in polar opposites. So you know, some people like me can become super perfectionist, you know, striving hard to do everything and, and do everything properly and, you know, overachievers kind of thing. And I think our society encourages this to be overachievers, you know, work and maintain a family and look perfect and exercise and, you know, do all this. Um, and the the flip side is, you know, people can kind of give up and, um I guess become more a victim, have a victim mentality. Poor me, I can't do anything. We can't, we don't manage boundaries um, properly. So you could either have a wall or you could uh, let people in too close or you could have a mixture of both. There's, there's a lot of different ways that codependence manifests. Um, and I guess, yeah, what she says is that it comes from us not kind of managing situations that happen to us when we're younger. Um, but also, you know, trauma that can happen to us when we're older as well. So leading up to your time, just prior to you entering uh, treatment, what was happening for you in your life, Heather? What, you know, because nobody just goes and enters a, uh, a, a treatment facility if things are going swimmingly in their lives, obviously, because I've been there myself three times and... And prior to going in each time, I was on, you know, I just was completely suicidal. I didn't want to be alive. So 
tell us a little bit about what was happening in your life that prompted you to seek help. It was basically that I was too scared to get into a relationship. Um, and I did see a um, psychologist, but her advice was to go and get into another relationship. But I knew that wasn't right because um, I was too scared. I, it was it was excruciating because on the one hand, I would um, lose myself. And on the other hand, I was feeling conflicted because I wanted to, you know, do more to be able to help people. Because um, I used to sacrifice too much for, for other people, you know. I didn't know boundaries. And I guess I... I'd, I'd, I didn't recognise kind of healthy people, whereas some people can be wanting to get your attention and kind of suck all your attention. Um, so I wasn't able to do that. So it was that. It was too scared to get into a relationship. I was, I don't know, 35 or something. I thought, so now what? I don't get into a relationship. Um, and then, then what? Stay single forever or maybe not have a family. So I didn't want to live like that. And it was really, it was reading that book. And I realised, okay, that I, I don't have to live like this. I, I don't have to be black and white. I don't have to, you know, not cry. This isn't healthy. There's there's things wrong with me. Um, and so I, I just, I didn't want to live that life and I wanted to get help. I guess I, being, <laughs> striving on that perfectionism, I mean, having that kind of perfectionism, that's how it manifested in me. Whereas for other people, it would manifest in drugs, alcohol, eating. Some people um, you know, when they don't want to manage their emotions properly, go towards eating. Um, some people, gaming, gambling. You know, for some of us, it's anxiety. For other people, it's depression. Um, and so I wanted to perfect, you know, recovering from codependence. That was one of the benefits of perfectionism. It does have benefits, like all these, you know, character traits. It does have benefits, but it's how to manage them and use them in the appropriate uh, places. And do you think your time working as a police officer maybe contributed to your state of mind? Because obviously working as a police officer is, is a very stressful job. Do you, do, you, do you want to share some of the, you know, more traumatic experiences that, that you went through working as a police officer in Western Sydney? Sure. I think, yeah, I think definitely being a police officer does have an impact on um, our psychological states. I think I coped by not, um, you know, feeling my emotions enough, so or in a healthy way, and yeah, becoming a police officer, you, we become desensitised to things that we see, but obviously that's going to have an impact. We can't experience these, and you know, Pia Melody says witnessing a trauma is just as bad as um, experiencing it yourself, and not that I. I mean, I witnessed some, not all, but it's, you know, constantly having these negative, um, witnessing these negative situations, it certainly does play uh, an impact. And if we don't allow ourselves to have the emotions around these, then it's going to manifest in, in other ways in our body and through these addictions um, and through, you know, unhealthy behaviours. So tell us so about, guess, tell us about yes. what were some of the traumatic things that you witnessed as a police officer? Yeah, now that you're asking that, it's <laughs> like as a police officer, you kind of just do it. This is my day-to-day -day things that I that I do. But constant domestic violence incidents and, and serious ones, you know, where people get stabbed. I think the really sad ones are where the, usually it's the man, will, will kill the wife and then the the kids are left with, 
without a mother or a father because the father then is arrested and goes to jail. You know, horrific car accidents, stabbings, shootings. Um, yeah, we, we become desensitised to it. And, and for us, it becomes almost normal. I remember leaving thinking, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm sad to leave kind of the real world. But it's, it's actually not the real world because we only get to see that part of it. And it's not representative of the whole society. You, you told me uh, in one of our earlier conversations that you actually, you saw, I don't know, was it just one dead body or did you, were you were called to the scene where somebody was killed? Yeah, uh, we saw heaps of dead bodies. Um, but yeah, I recall the incident. Yeah, I remember standing over a man um, and he had 11 bullet holes in him. Um, it's like 4.30 in the morning. I was meant to go home at 1am. Um, yeah, I mean... This is the type of thing that we we see, especially in southwestern Sydney. Sure, and Heather, I'm interested in your experience inside uh, South Pacific Private. Do Do you want to tell us about you know what what you know how was your your few weeks in there? Was you know was it a painful but um, positive experience? I mean, I'm interested. South Pacific Private. I see that as the start to my new life. I really do. I actually equate converting and, and finding spirituality and my time in South Pacific Private as the two really significant times in my life where I became a new person in, in each instance. They both equally gave me um, peace and a new lease on life. I think one without the other wouldn't, wouldn't have given me um, the contentment that I have now, the peace that I have now, the confidence that I have that I can manage situations and be myself and, you know, implement boundaries when I need to, manage my emotions when I need to, um, identify if if I have a tightness in my chest, you know, I, I, no, I don't get it in my chest anymore, in my neck, then I know, okay, there's some sort of emotion going on for me, just process it. Um, it's just really changed my whole life. I actually say to people, because... Um, we go on uh, spiritual retreats as the Muslim community sometimes. And I say to people, you know, South Pacific private was the best spiritual retreat I've ever been on because I learned how to live as a healthy adult and a functioning adult in society. And I think we don't, we don't teach people enough. These, these things, how to have healthy self-esteem, how to have boundaries, how to be healthily, you know, vulnerable with people, how to manage our emotions. I think they are starting to teach things like this in schools, but I certainly don't remember learning any of it. Um, so, yeah, it taught me how to function as a healthy adult, um, live in balance. That's one of the key parts of codependence. People with codependence aren't, aren't balanced um, in their life, so they can be black and white and, um, you know, not manage emotions probably either shut, up, shut down their emotions or they um, are over-emotional. Some people can't, you know, stop their crying, for example. I was in the other category. Um, so yeah, it was three weeks. It was 21 days. You stay there, no mobile phones. Um, and they, they teach you how to have a, a healthy life. So it was a mixture of workshops and, or lectures, I suppose, group therapy. We'd go for beach walks twice a day, yoga, meditation. Um, it was, I mean, I see it more like a course. Yes, technically it is a rehab. It's a treatment center, but everybody's treated you know, pretty much the same way. There are a few separate sessions that you can do for different addictions, but really the core of the problem is the same and it just manifests differently for some people. So for me, it was anxiety and perfectionism. 
um, but for other people it's drugs or other people's you know eating disorders or so forth. I mean it can be bloody scary going into a place like South Pacific you know for me I went in there um, I didn't I didn't know what to expect and it, it really you know, the first couple of days was like oh I don't know if I can if I can last you know it was it was really scary for me but then you know, I, I actually am really grateful that I stuck through the experience. How, how was it for you in your first few days? Did you, were you like, oh, is this the right thing to do? And, you know, for people that might be listening who, who might be contemplating just reaching out, do you think that would be a good idea for someone just to, um, to go into a place like South Pacific Private? I was really nervous. Um, and I tried to talk myself out a bit. I was thinking, oh, maybe I don't really need to. Maybe I can just go to therapy. I mean, going for 21 days to a, a rehab place, um, of course it is scary. And do I really need it? Am I that, you know, unhealthy? Like it's the shame as well that comes with that. Um, whereas really it's like a course. It's amazing. But you don't know that going in. Um, so, yeah, I was terrified. But I guess within 24 hours I'd, I'd made some friends for me, the driving factor was I don't want to live this life anymore. I, I don't want to live like this. I recognise now I've got a problem. It's codependence. It can be fixed. This is how I need to do it. Um, and if I want to fix it quickly, then I go for 21 days. And the best thing is you, you're practising it in there for 21 days. That When I came out, I thought I would go straight back to my old ways, but I didn't because, I mean, it's not that simple. Obviously, there's some parts I had to keep working on and, and the first year was tough Matt, trying to find that balance and, and practice the new behaviors that we've learned and you know they teach you to to check your thoughts um, and you know discard ones that aren't healthy and so forth um, but yeah it I just didn't want to live that life anymore I wanted to to have a healthy relationship and, and have a family one day um, and I'm happy to say that now I can. Yes, I've got a husband. He's healthy. Um, so no more attracting the wrong type of person um, because that's what happens too. If someone's unhealthy, they're going to attract an unhealthy person. Now, they, they said in South Pacific, your wounds kind of attract each other. So they said, once you're healthy, you're going to attract someone healthy. And I just can't believe it's happened. And now I have a, a beautiful daughter, four and a half months. So, yeah, I'm very happy. I think I moved away from the question, but... No, it's, it's good. I just want to ask you, so you, did you continue to work as a police officer for a while after you left? After I left South Pacific? Yes, yeah. No, the, I went into South Pacific much after. Um, I left okay. policing in 2012. I went into South Pacific 2015, I think. So, yeah, about three years after. Okay, well, let's talk about how spirituality has changed your life because I know know that it has because I know you. And uh, but for the people who don't know you, Heather, t why don't you just tell us? You know, how has it changed your life? And and uh, you know, what what is it that is so important for you in spirituality, and in particular with Islam? I guess uh, there's so many ways, you know, I try to live my life now with that spiritual focus, with God in mind um, and, you know, what would God want of me and how would he want me to, to live my life? And as a result, it's, it's really given me peace. It's given me what that definition of Islam is um, in so many different aspects. Firstly, it gave me a sense of purpose, that there's actual purpose to this life. We're not just aimlessly wandering around trying to manage things. 
Um, you know, there's a lot of detail in Islam about what God is, all his characteristics, um, what our purpose is. And so it allows me to have comfort knowing that, you know, there's a higher being, which I um, believe is God, that can help comfort me, that is looking after my affairs. I mean, obviously we have free will. We don't take that out of it. But there's someone there that will help guide me if I ask him, um, that knows what's going on, that's not going to give me something that I can't handle. Um, it's given me a, a, a way to live my life. And this was one thing that really surprised me about Islam, like all the teachings. As I implement them, I find myself much happier, much more content and much more peaceful, even though I think they're crazy. So the first most important thing for a Muslim is that we pray five times a day. And I thought, this is crazy. Surely God doesn't want us to pray five times a day. I thought it was so much. I thought it might be stressful to find a place to pray. I thought it would be stressful to fit it into my super busy schedule. Um, but actually I thought, okay, I'll give it a go. And I found I was so much more peaceful. It's like forced meditation five times a day. It's that connection with God, a reminder that there's a higher being, that there's a purpose in life. It's a reminder to live a more moral life because we believe we're going to be questioned on the day of judgment. Um, I really find it peaceful. I, I look forward to it. Um, and so as I do that, there was more confidence in me of God and and of Islam. And so, you know, I kept going. You know, Muslims, the second most important thing for Muslims um, is, is paying alms, giving 2.5% of our excess wealth. But I'll, I'll skip over that one. The next one for me was fasting. And we Sarah, fast. Hold on. Hold on. You can't, can't just skip over that. That sounds interesting. What, what, what is this about you 2.5% of uh, wealth? You need to do what with that? So for Muslims, um, yeah, the second most important act for us, you know, is that we give 2.5% of our excess wealth if we have a minimum amount of, of excess wealth. So after we've got our, you know, house and our even car today, scholars say is essential in, in Sydney, for example, mobile phone, all these things. After all that's taken care of, if we have a minimum amount, at the moment it's around 4700 if we have at least that amount in savings, in gold, um, you know, jewellery or something, then we will give 2.5% of that away and so to charity. To, to, it has to be to the very needy people in society. So, um, you know, that, that wasn't part of my kind of, well, I guess, conversion story or journey in faith um, and that's why I skipped over it. But I think okay. it's, it's very important because that small amount, 2.5% of $5,000 is... I think $125, like it's nothing. But that, for someone that's living in poverty, um, can really help them and, and it can eradicate poverty. So you're listing the priorities, were you? So what, what did you say number one was? So there's five pillars in Islam and yep. they're the most important acts that people have to follow. The first one is just the testimony of faith. So that's what we say to convert and that's what a practicing Muslim, we, we say it often. So that's, it's kind of like we already do that. So the first most important act is praying five times a day. Um, right. And then the second one was this, this charity um, or almsgiving. Yep. And then the third one was fasting for 30 days in the lunar month of Ramadan. Um, during daylight hours. And I just thought this was ridiculous. And I actually used to say, don't fast, it's bad for you. Because I was the type that needed to eat every <laughs> every couple of hours or I'd get completely hangry. 
um, to the point that, you know, people <laughs> that I would work a shift within um, the police would say, no, no, I'm not working with you if you're fasting or have you eaten? Is it safe to talk to you yet? Like it was really bad. But when I started fasting and I found that I could do that, I thought, oh, my goodness, look at what my desires are um, doing. I'm totally ruled by my stomach when if I miss lunch, it's not the end of the world. I should still be able to function. And, and I realized if I can do this, if I can fast for 30 days during daylight hours, what else can I do? Like I've got strong willpower. And this is one of the purposes of, of this fast actually to strengthen our willpower. Um, so we're not just giving into our desires at, at any moment. I'm fascinated so by this because it is, and we mentioned it when we had a, a conversation before we, we started recording, but it's, uh, it's about that, especially in Western society, people tend to eat far too much and it, it goes to greed and gluttony, doesn't it? Exactly. And that's the point. We're finding that balance. We eat too much in the West. And for me, it was liberating to start fasting and realize I can do this. So now I try to fast, um, you know, regularly, at least once a week. Um, I mean, this was prior to getting pregnant, but yeah, because I love it. I feel light. I feel like my, um, my intellect is sharpened. I feel like my willpower is sharpened. I really appreciate another benefit of fasting is that we really appreciate, you know, even one sip of water. Some people uh, have to walk kilometres just to get dirty water. We turn on a tap and we've got fresh, pure water that we can drink and we take all this for granted. We take food for granted. We waste it. We throw it out. We go to a cafe. Oh, why don't you have this type of coffee? Oh, I can't believe they don't have this coffee. Um, so fasting really helps us to, to appreciate every morsel of food, even dry bread, is an absolute blessing. And I used to think, oh, no, I appreciate it. I appreciate food. But it is really different when you fast. I appreciate it much more. And that can that can extend to more than just food, can't it? That just the principle of taking things for gratitude and appreciation and not and not wasting. Is exactly. This is a this is what my um honors thesis was on actually. Not honors, my master's thesis in Islamic studies it was on environmental Islamic environmental ethics, and it was this concept in Islam called iktisad, which is exactly what you've said, you know, using things for what they're intended to, not going overboard um, and appreciating things as well. Yeah, it's a very important part. This is, this is such an important part for me, Heather, because in my recovery from drug and alcohol addiction, what I've learned is you almost have to reboot or restart your whole life. And, you know, when, when people enter recovery usually they're in at their rock bottom and you know things are really terrible in their lives and people are full of uh, self-doubt critical thoughts and it's just like well hold on a minute let's just let's just take take things that we would normally take for granted let's let's show some gratitude for it and start from there and then you know you slowly start to appreciate things that previously didn't you never, you never took any appreciation for, and that's why I tend to. That's why I've called this show the gift of addiction, because through recovery from addiction, you can see the world with a whole new set of glasses. Absolutely, I remember them talking about that in South Pacific. Like you're going to look at everything differently. You know, a cup of coffee, a leaf on the tree, and you know, I'm an environmentalist, so I would. 
I appreciate the environment, but it's very true. Like once I, um, and even Islamically, you know, we, we look at the environment as such a, an important sign of God because he's created it. We can tell a lot, but really through that recovery, through my journey in SPP, I did find that you really look at everything with this like awe. Um, it's, it's amazing. And yeah, this gratitude is very important. I, I think it's, it really can change our whole lives. I've got an app actually that sends me a positive message every day. And sometimes if I'm feeling just a little bit down, I'll just, you know, when I look at that, I think, yeah, that's right. And every day I try to say thank you to God. Um, you know, in Arabic we say alhamdulillah, but it's like thanks, you know, for I, I try and like um, I say it a hundred times and think about all the things that I'm grateful for and it just changes your whole perspective. If you were having a bad day, all of a sudden I'm having such a good day. So I, yeah, that's why I um, I found those two aspects, spirituality um, you know, my belief in Islam and also South Pacific private, they share a lot of similar, um, I guess, prescriptions or guidance, guidelines. Um, and this is one of them, the gratitude. So it's like double. Yes, you've got to do it doubly. Um, I'm, I'm really fascinated in this conversation, Heather. So let's just get through the top, the, the five, uh, the list of five that we're talking about. So three was fasting in the lunar month of Ramadan. What's number four? No, that was four. Oh, that was and four. Then, yeah. And then the fifth one is doing a pilgrimage to um, Mecca, which is in Saudi Arabia, um, if we can financially or physically afford it. And, you know, again, I thought, oh, I don't really want to do that. There's like two million people. It's at a certain time of the year. So it's, there's so many people there. There's crowds. It's hot. Um, but I misunderstood the point. And, you know, with everything in Islam, it's been like that. If I've thought this is, I don't really agree with this, once I've learned the wisdom of it, then I, I, I realise, oh, actually, you know, I do agree with this. Um, and so it's really a transformative experience um, going to that, that holy site. Have you, have you done that? I haven't been blessed enough to go yet, no. Do, do you have plans? I would love to, but no immediate plans, no. But I, it's, it's always, for a practising Muslim, that's always in our mind and, and we pray to go. Um, with my age, we needed to have kids first, but, yeah, we'll see. Um, I, we'll move on, but I just want to say quickly, when you mentioned, you know, that we live in Australia and we, we get, we have so many uh, privileges here and we're so lucky, things like clean water. We've talked about this before, but you said something about honouring the water that you drink. And I think this is really important because um, I came across uh, this study by a Japanese scientist, Dr. Masaru Emoto, who said that, um, human consciousness can affect the particles of water, like it can physically change the water. And um, I know that perhaps in Islam there's a similar similar uh, principle that you must, you know, you honour the water, you give love to the water, you drink the water, then you become a magnet for for love or whatever you give to that water. Is it, Do you know anything about this? Yeah, I've seen that video. It's amazing. He says good positive words and then the water crystals change to a beautiful shape and he says negative words and they they change to a negative um shape the water crystals um yeah so in islam we always say you know in the name of god in arabic bismillah before we we drink water um and yeah because we're made up of so much of water that that yeah to drink that water then obviously that um has an impact on us 
I think there's so much in in life that we don't understand and and for you know people that believe in God or you know at least Muslims we we look at that and say okay well that's the wisdom in um, you know God has created wisdom in absolutely everything and there's so much we don't understand and there's so much that that we couldn't do ourselves you know I don't think we'd even think of that like you know having the energy or the the love the you know the the voice changing water crystals it's absolutely amazing okay i want to talk to you about uh islam as a, as a religion because i mean let's face it, it in in western society it it you know it, it can obviously it's largely misunderstood from what i know from you and others it's actually a peaceful religion and i'm i just want to dispel some of the myths with you that it's you know people out there actually think it's a violent religion and can you help me out here heather with this because you know i'd like to put on the record actually what is islam about it's not about just killing the infidels is it <laughs> no it's not and i welcome any question um you know i as part of my job i've you know, I've left now to have a baby, but yeah, I've given a lot of talks to the non-Muslim community, especially schools, but other, you know, community events as well. And, and I welcome any question about it. And, and I, I love dispelling the myths. Um, so it's not a violent religion at all. Um, if we look at the example of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, if we look at the Quran, um, then we see that actually it's, Peace is always the preferred option. So, you know, Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, even signed treaties that were disadvantageous for Muslims just so that there was peace between the tribes. So very negative conditions for the Muslims and better um, conditions for the other party just so that, okay, but there's peace between our tribes. There's going to be no fighting. Um, you know, there's certain conditions. If, if someone does engage in battle with Muslims that they have to, you know, not harm any of their crops, any of their cattle, um, you know, the women, the children, anyone that's not fighting them. If the other party inclines towards surrender, they have to surrender straight away. Um, it's really, you know, Muslims can't even hurt, you know, we shouldn't even hurt a fly, let alone another um, human being. And there's a lot of examples of how um, Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was with animals and how we shouldn't harm them at all. But I guess to answer your question, um, Islam is, comprises of three things. The first is the six essential beliefs in God, six essential beliefs, and one of them is in God's unity. Um, another one is the angels. The third one is um, in the holy books. So we believe that God has revealed scripture through the angel Gabriel um, over time. So one was the Torah to Moses, one was um, the gospel to Jesus, the Psalms to David, and then the Quran to Prophet Muhammad, and, and peace be upon all those messengers. We say that out of respect for them. Um, the fourth one is belief in, in mess the messengers, the prophets, people like those ones I mentioned and others. The fifth one is belief in the afterlife, that we're going to be accountable for everything that we do in this life. Um, so we need to seek forgiveness for anything that we've done is wrong. And the sixth one is belief in divine determination, which is everything has a purpose. God knows what's happening, but we have our free will and, and we, we can exercise our free will. So that's the first part of Islam. The second one is those five pillars that we mentioned, and that's to help people become, you know, the spiritually the best person they can be. And the third aspect is called Ihsan, and it's spiritual excellence. So Muslims should strive all the time to do everything that we do with excellence, with the way that God would be pleased with, 
Um, and that, that kind of summarises the religion, but obviously there's a lot more to it. Just, just as you were saying that, it occurred to me, you know, there's a lot of parallels to uh, I'm in recovery and I know a bit about the 12 steps in 12-step fellowships. And, and a large part of that is not that they say in the 12-step fellowships that you will be judged, uh, you know, at the end of your life. But a huge part of it is, is taking a very frank assessment of, of how you have been living and seeking forgiveness and making amends where, where possible and when it's right to do so. Yeah, and it was a huge part in South Pacific. That's why I say it was the best spiritual retreat because there was a lot of mention of, you know, a higher power, whatever the higher power for you might be. And so for me, obviously, it's God. But exactly, there were lots of parallels like this, you know, seek forgiveness and have gratitude and, you know, release your kind of um, some of it to, to God. You know, you're not in control of everything. And I had lived my life trying to be in control of everything, to be honest, until I found faith and, and I kept getting that message you know, that we're not in control. Oh. God is, we have free will, but our free will is interplaying with other people's free will as well. Absolutely. And that's another huge part of the 12 steps is that you actually have to accept your powerlessness firstly over your addiction or your alcoholism, but also over people, places and things. And, you know, in, in, in uh, the 12 steps, as far as exerting your willpower goes, your willpower when it comes to controlling your addiction is absolutely useless. And that's why God or a higher power of your understanding plays such an important part because you need to completely surrender to, to that higher power to it, to allow you to understand that you are absolutely powerless without the help of God. Yeah, and I think that's why for me, uh, you know, maybe I had a more positive experience going into South Pacific. It was scary and it was it was hard work. Like I'm not going to say that it wasn't hard. It's hard. It's hard feeling emotions for the first time. It's hard, you know, checking your thoughts, realising things that you've done wrong in your life, knowing to seek forgiveness, all this. It's a very hard journey. Um, but I guess going in with that faith, I had already submitted to God, um, to my higher power and known that he's in control and that I'm out of control of certain things and have that powerlessness. So I think I was ready just to, I guess that's why for me it was more like a course. I was ready to learn the skills. Okay, check your your thoughts. Okay, practice boundaries. Okay, practice vulnerability when it's appropriate and not when it's not, you know. Um, yeah, I think they go very well together. And I'm also just going back to what you said about Islam being a peaceful religion. I would just like to note that, in many ways, and I don't know what you think about this, but I'd love to hear from you, that in many ways, it, I mean, in every way, really, it is no, absolutely no different to the way that other religions have been hijacked by extremists or fundamentalists who give, you know, the, the religion a bad name. And for some reason, Islam has, has probably copped it worse, especially in Western within the Western media. But, I mean, when you think about it, there are extremists within the Christianity Judaism, I mean, there's every religion on earth has, has that level of extremism, doesn't it? Exactly. Even I think this says the point, there's Buddhist terrorists in Myanmar, in Burma. Mm. So exactly. And it's a small percentage of any religion. But like you said, you know, Islam just gets all the media press at the moment. 
um, because it's not that that interesting to share about the, the Islam being a peaceful religion and all the good things that Muslims do. Um, on a personal level, Heather, you know, I know that you were raised in a Catholic family here, here in Sydney. I, I want to ask you, you know, what, what was the reaction from your family when you, you announced to them that you were converting to Islam and, you know, your friends and your family? Was, was it met with resistance, I mean, or misunderstanding? Yeah, sometimes it was met with resistance and misunderstanding because of the what's on the media. Um, but over time, you know, I discuss with people and they see, okay, actually it is a peaceful religion. People see that I've become a much better person um, as a result of it because it was, you know, three years until I went into South Pacific. So for three years I was, um, you know, Islam was, was guiding me becoming a better person. Um, and so, yeah, over time people realise, oh, okay, yeah, this is better. But but some people, yeah, some people reacted fine. They were just very accepting and, okay, cool, whatever works best for you. And I, I find most Australians are like that, you know, just as long as you're not messing with me, like <laughs> you can do whatever you want if it makes you happy. Um, obviously it's different on a family level, but, yeah. Um, in terms of, uh, like, you know, we in recovery in the 12-step uh, fellowships. I can't identify as a specific, as a member of a specific fellowship because you know there's very strict anonymity codes, and I'm just going to say that because I don't want to be accused of breaching the anonymity thing, which is a, a huge um, part of 12-step fellowships. But in terms of the 12-step fellowships, um, you know, I uh, I've actually forgotten what the, what I was about to say. What were we talking about? <laughs> Um, we were talking about, you asked me if family and friends reacted badly. Oh, uh, okay. Um, yeah, no, I've actually just lost it. Sorry about that. That's not a very a, a good thing. Oh, that's right. Sorry. Here it comes. <laughs> I told you I was thick. Um, no, no. Everyone. <laughs> no, that's right. So in 12-step in fellowships, there is a, a, a large part of um, you, you've got to have what's called a daily program of action. And the 11th step talks about um, improving conscious contact with God through prayer and meditation, praying only knowledge for his will for us and the power to carry that out. So in terms of what uh, a recovering addict or alcoholic is encouraged to do, that, that, is, that includes things like praying as soon as you wake up in the morning, meditating and uh, writing a gratitude list. I just am interested in what uh, you do you have like a, a daily spiritual program or what, what do you do? Yeah. So I was already praying five times a day. So that was good. And one of them is first thing when you wake up in the morning. Um, I think already being Muslim, yeah, we do have, um, you know, it is important to be gratitude, to be grateful. And so that's something that, that came through the faith already. Um, but for me it was, yeah, when I, it's been a bit disrupted now. Um, but yes, for me, I was, um, what was I doing? I was doing a feelings check in the morning, like meditating. Um, I was also reading from a, like a, what would you call it? Those books that we had in South Pacific private there, you know, a little short excerpts about things like boundaries and, and being vulnerable and self-esteem. Um, so yeah, what else was I doing? Oh yeah. Recently I've gotten into affirmations, so I will, record things because part of our recovery is to 
challenge negative thoughts that we have about ourselves. So things like, you know, I am enough and um, maybe, you know, I'm not defined by, you know, my um, outcome, like what I do kind of thing, but more about who I am as a person. I have self-esteem just because I'm created by God. That would be something that I would say. Um, And so I've recorded a bunch of these um, affirmations, things like, you know, I will look after my body because I used to neglect my body um, in the effort to get things done. Um, So, yeah, I record them and I listen to them. Um, I find, you know, reading our Holy Scripture, the Quran, very, it gives me a lot of peace um, and a lot of things to reflect on, how to be a better person. Um, So, yeah. Those are some of the things I do. That's a, that's a huge part of recovery. It, it, you know, even if, it, if it's recovery from any addiction, in your case, work addiction uh, or drug and alcohol addiction, is to reprogram the mind, you know, through, through affirmations, which I too have used. I find them incredibly powerful because I have heard, and I actually totally believe this, that, you know, your thoughts will manifest your reality. Ultimately, if you, if you have these negative thoughts about yourself and you're continually replaying the broken record in your head, that is what your reality will eventually or will look like if it doesn't already. So, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm just very interested in that. And I just want to talk to you about God and consciousness because I find it to be the most interesting question there is and how Islam teaches you about consciousness does consciousness come into play in in your religion yeah 100 percent um everything does all of the human faculties do um you know we need to be living in consciousness we can't just be living blindly and just following what other people teach us so i suppose it starts from the quran speaks many times about you know believe in god because you look around you because you see the proof of god living um, in creation, in in us as human beings, um, and because you know, in because it makes sense. Don't just believe in God because your forefathers, you know, or your your parents told you to. Like, come to it with your intellect. Don't just blindly follow. And the same, you know, you you implement that for in in all aspects of your life. Be conscious. Don't just sin and not. Um, recognize it you know be constantly questioning yourself and how can i become a better person not in a negative way but in a always striving to become better we need to live this conscious life but i want to draw a distinction between the coming to god with your intellect or in in some type of conceptual understanding because what i've learned you know in my two and a bit years of recovery i've I've also become hugely fascinated in spirituality and, you know, there are spiritual teachers like Eckhart Tolle and Muji and Sadhguru and others, and they all talk about the same thing. And particularly Eckhart Tolle, who knows a lot about Jesus and Jesus's teachings have been obscured by, by the church when, when he's saying, you know, it's one thing to intellectualize the existence of God and have some type of conceptual understanding, but it's entirely different to to know it, to, to know it in your heart. So I don't know whether Islam teaches this or not, but um, I'd like to hear from you because from what I've understand is we all go about, we've all been culturally and personally conditioned to believe that I am this little I, you know, this is my name. My name is Bertie. I, you know, I was born and raised here in Sydney and these are my family and friends. And, you know, that's, who we 
come to understand as our identity. But underneath all of that is the spirit that connects all of us. And that to me is God. It's, it's everything. We're all part of the same uh, being. So yeah, that's a bit different. We, we believe that God is outside of creation because he created it. So just like I'm outside of a picture I might draw or a cake I might bake, we're, we're outside of it. Um, but yes, we do have, um, you know, the spirit and that inclines towards God. You know, if we don't, we do cover it up with, with things that happen in our life. But if we can really do things like fasting, then that spirit that, that goes towards good, that, that um, you know, loves to be spiritual and connect with God will come out. And so, yeah, that's important what you said about the, you can intellectualize God. We speak in Islam about there's three levels of certainty to belief. So one of that is, and that's the basic level, the, the certainty of knowledge that you can know intellectually, just like, you know, if someone tells you there's a, a ship burning, you can know it, but you can't actually see it yet. And you haven't felt it. There's the certainty with seeing so you actually see the evidence of god in things that happen around us through you know seeing the the outcomes of of certain practices and so forth and then the last one is the certainty with feeling um and that's more to do with what you're describing and and for me that was manifested in you know once i was open to it i can feel when god is playing a part in my life is guiding me to certain things you know those gut instincts that we get um, through living the faith it's I know this is better for me through that sense of feeling like when I actually do my prayers it's different to intellectualizing okay prayer is beneficial because of all these reasons but when you do it you have that certainty with feeling so you're right this is an important distinction is there is there scope for oneness? That's the question I suppose I was asking because, uh, you know, the word yoga means union. And I think that was the aim of all the, the Indian uh, Himalayan gurus and, and the Vedic teachings. And that's what I've come to believe is that, you know, what the, the word God, and you said that in Islam, it's sort of God is an exterior separate entity. Is, is that correct? Am I right in, in, yeah. in hearing you there? Yeah, God is a separate entity, but in terms of the oneness, like God is one. And also there's a lot in Islam that brings us to be one with, you know, fellow human beings. So we're one humanity, um, such as when we pray, our congregational prayers, we all line up, we have to stand shoulder to shoulder. So we're not, you know, feeling like we're arrogant. Everybody has to pray, no matter who you are, the top, scholar the prime minister someone with money um you know in times of fasting we break our fast together there's a lot in islam about the oneness of humanity but in terms of oneness with god no that would go against the fundamental belief in our faith that god is this higher power like he is not like humans just like if we write a book we're not like any of the words in the book Okay, well, so my understanding and and my feeling, my personal feeling on this is that all fear and anger and hostility arises in the human being's consciousness because of this feeling of separateness from every other individual. So, you know, the the fear that we are all alone on uh, in this life and we are not actually connected, that gives rise to fear and indeed this is probably a huge cause of addiction and that's why i think spiritual solutions are the only ones for people 
who suffer real chronic alcoholism or drug addiction or any type of mental health ailment that is that once that you can feel that you are not as alone in this universe as you thought you are, then it, it gives you great joy and, and the fear will dissipate. Absolutely. And that's been my experience as well. And in Islam, we say, you know, we, we're given that, that drive to search for, to find God, because otherwise if we don't fill that, that void, we're going to, with God, we're going to fill it with other things like you've mentioned. And I just, uh, just wrapping up, Heather, because I'm really grateful for your time today. I just wanted to ask you two, two questions. Firstly, people that, you know, want to seek help for, for stuff that you, you mentioned earlier, uh, or whatever it might be, you know, codependency, perfectionism, work addiction, depression, anxiety, whatever it might be. There is this stigma that exists in society that, people who, who are suffering from these ailments are reluctant to, to reach out for help. Uh, what, what would you have to say to those people? I guess I'd go even further and say, if there's anything that you don't like about yourself, if there's something, some character trait, something that you do, some behaviour, some thoughts that you have, you don't have to live like this. Your, your instinct is probably right. It's not right. Go get help. Um, and the benefits on the other side are like, having a whole new life um, and it doesn't necessarily need to be through going for, for three weeks in the South Pacific private, but I do highly recommend that because in there you practice all the healthy behaviours um, and so you, you have this toolbox for you for how to live a healthy life and for me, I just it just comes naturally now. Um, you know, very it's very rare that I have to okay, what's going on for me? It happens. Um, but for the most part, I'm, I'm just living this way now. And it's, it's manifested in my life, you know, having a baby, a lot of people have said to me, oh, I thought you'd be a real stressy, controlling mum. I'm really surprised that you're so relaxed about it. And it's because I did this hard work. It comes naturally to me now. I'm much more relaxed. I don't have this anxiety. Um, so yeah, sorry, it's a long way to answer your question. But my, my answer would be, if you have any sort of trouble, if you don't like anything about yourself, seek help. Um, if you question whether you think it's not healthy or not, read Facing Codependence by Pia Melody. Um, you know, I'm happy to speak to anybody about it. Contact South Pacific Private, see if they, they will help you. Or, or contact a good therapist. I think there are some people in this field that haven't done the work on themselves. And if they haven't done that, then they come to the situation from a different level. They come maybe intellectually, maybe um, yeah, bringing their, their academic answers. Whereas I think if they've done the work on themselves, they, they know how to, to move through it. And yeah, it's, it's very important to get the right therapist. And I think a lot of people don't, and then they give up. And so I was glad I didn't. And people don't need to be embarrassed or ashamed of, of something that's actually more common than they think that, you know, there's a lot of people out there with the same thing. I actually think, you know, everybody would benefit from learning these tools. Um, you know, we're not taught how to function healthily in society amongst, with all these things that I've, I've shared. So, yeah, I don't know why there is such a stigma. If we want to learn how to do anything, we have to go to a course. We have to learn how to do it. So the same comes with our mental health and having healthy relationships. We need to learn how to do it. You've got a great message, Heather, and I really have enjoyed talking to you. And I really hope this gets out to people who may be in need. But uh, if, the, if there is somebody out there that wants to get in touch with you, can I ask you, is there, is there a way for them to contact you? 
absolutely. Yeah, they can find me on Facebook. My name's Heather Fagan. Um, or they can send me an email to hfagan at csu.edu.au. And I'm more than happy to ch chat to anyone about these topics. They're my passion. They've, they've changed my life. Thank you so much, Heather. It's been a pleasure and a privilege. And I really look forward to chatting with you again soon. Me too. Thanks, Bertie.